You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. It's called 831 Central African Time, and that time of the evening where we welcome Anwar Kassam on his segment, Driving with Anwar. Anwar, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Tell us, how are you doing uh, this beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, brother Shafat. I know you also a big time in politics and you read world affairs and all this. What's in your mind? You know, what's really happening in that Middle East there, uh, Anwar? You know, the truth be told, you know, uh, uh, if you look at America, the start of all wars. And I, I tend to admire Donald Trump, you know. A lot of people may not agree with me, but he's the only president uh, amongst the last three. The last three obviously called, uh, created 11 wars. If you look at Obama, if you look at Bush, and if you look at, uh, I think it was Clinton. You know, all three of them created 11 wars. And here we have uh, Donald Trump, who's done more good for the uh, country itself, didn't create any war. He actually, you know, he brought in, he actually picked up the economy and they ousted him, just like, you know, if you look at Imran Khan in uh, Pakistan, and they put a, a person like Biden there who doesn't know directions, can't really talk well, you know. So it, it, that itself will tell a person the way the world is run, you know. People are elected not by the votes, you know, they talk about independence and talk about democracy, you know, in every country. The president that's being elected is never by the people, I would say. I, I, I would rather, you know, uh, go to the fact that smaller countries, you know, that doesn't have much to offer to the uh, international uh, countries, you know, I, I suppose they will be fair. But uh, otherwise, no. Because all those presidents, if you look around, if you look at Imran Khan, what he's done for Pakistan, the amount of good, yet they got him thrown in prison. You, you look at uh, Donald Trump, that in the f- first few months of lockdown, he created 3 million jobs in America. Look at the amount of good. And, you know, hopefully he becomes president because he says it the way it is. And, you know, I was reading a very important, a very good article about him. And they say that he actually, in when times of power, he actually ran America as a business. And that is why it flourished to that point. And then you have Biden that once again, you know, always backing the wrong things in life. So, Brother Shafat, you know, we have, I think, enough at our own doorstep here in South Africa with the inflation, the cost of living, the fuel prices. You know, I, I think, as I say, you must feed your, yourself first, then your neighbors. And I, I really think, you know, when you, when you consider the world's news, you know, there's nothing good the world has to offer. If you look at Saudi Arabia on the other side, uh, holding some of the biggest discotheques, uh, you know, everything is flawed right now in so many countries. And if you look at the national disasters on the other side, these guys still don't catch a wake-up call. You know, the wrath of Almighty is so great. So it's just disappointing to you, you know. We are actually at a intercession where we actually considering emigrating, and we can't really choose the country because every country has some form of trouble or whatever it is, you know, some political uprising that's always there, or somebody's against the Muslims there, you know. So it's difficult to really choose. If you had to choose a country, where would you rather go, you know? So it is a difficult time, I think, for the world at this present moment. You make a good point, Danwar, and, uh, you know, agreed uh, to uh, your analysis, uh, you know, perhaps uh, being spot on there. And uh, then you talk about this uh, individual called Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, his, only, his whole history is full of, uh, you know, uh, Zionism uh, and his evil that he's perpetrated. Uh, he's killed more Palestinians than anyone before him. And, you know, he keeps on going on that uh, type of uh, crusade of uh, causing mayhem and... Uh, you know, a disaster follows him wherever he goes. He's, he's making people's lives miserable. 
you know, we know what uh, waits for him in the Akhira. But uh, what's your thoughts on this person, Benjamin Netanyahu, Anwar? You know, 100%. You know, I agree with you. Obviously, he comes with no good background whatsoever. But then again, if you look at the likes of him, if one had to consider Bush himself, you know, the last president, and you you think to yourself, when the Twin Towers went down, just over 2,000 people passed away, you know, Almighty must grant them Shifa, I'll grant them, you know, Jannah. But at the same time, he took out one of our Muslim countries, how many hundred thousand people he killed. So there's no justification in anything, you know. So what makes these presidents who create these wars any less than him, you know? So I just think they're all our war criminals. If you look at Idi Amin on this side, you know, if you go back to yesteryear, most of these people, if you look at uh, Adolf Hitler on the other side, you know, all of them had the same, you know, the Holocaust. It, it, it just doesn't balance, Brother Shafa. It just doesn't balance. You know, it just tells you the bitterness of the people in the world that we live in, uh, you know. So there's nobody is a really true leader. You know, if you look at every president in every country right now, to a point I respect Putin because of his beliefs. You know, I remember the time uh, I, I read an article where Obama actually uh, insinuated war against uh, Syria, I remember. And uh, Putin actually sent a message uh, to him and told him, see, uh, Obama, I just want you to know that if you insinuate war against Syria, I won't be too happy. And he retracted and he pulled back and he never created that war at that period of time. You know, so I admire and respect him for that. So likewise, you know, uh, there's certain presidents has a lot of good in them, but they have some bad but you know what? You really can't find the perfect person, I think, out there when it comes to ruling up our countries. Now, Anwar, if uh, someone's listening to you and uh, maybe say, hey, Shafat, ask Anwar this question. How would you bring about peace in the Middle East if you had the uh, power to do so, Anwar? What would you do? You know, honestly speaking, Brother Shafat, uh, if, if you look at South Africa, let's take South Africa as an example. If you look at the ANC, what the ANC has done, they have, for the last 30 years, divided the people and they conquer small batches at a time. If you look at the AWB, if you look at the history, and you go back 30 years ago, then there is no democracy in South Africa. That we're all aware of. But every single time there's an incident, they cry racialism. So divide and conquer. You know, if you look at the Middle East, if you look at the time when wars was actually uh, uh, taking place, and you, if you consider uh, Saudi Arabia for one, that allowed America to fuel up and go bomb all our Muslim countries. They never objected to it, you know. So there is no brotherhood. I honestly feel if all our Muslim countries get together and, you know, join one force, basically, how we have the UN that will only interfere or go into countries where they have something to gain so they can control that country's monetary and all the substance or mineral value, you know. I feel, you know, we Muslim countries have enough of that, you know, to actually hold the world's ransom and tell these guys, you know what, leave all Muslim countries out of it. You know, so don't go after Palestine, don't go after, you know, don't go after Syria. You know, maybe somebody listen. But they have realized, if you look at Saudi, Saudi is under the wing of who? America. Everyone knows that. You know, whatever America says goes, you know, it seems like they're the brainchild of America. You know, so it's kind of disappointing that we have no unity when it comes to the uh, Muslim world, I would say. You know, but if there was unity, Nobody would have interfered. We wouldn't make it. We wouldn't be making dua for Syria. We wouldn't making dua for all that we we have lost. You know, because we know that together we we will have strength and we'll be united. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Well, Anwar said it uh, well there. 
United we stand, divided we fall, and we are, you know, honestly, we divided, and, you know, the enemies are running a racket. Why? Because, you know, these guys will do nothing about that, uh, but Allah, hopefully Allah will bring up, you know, a speedy, speedy change of mind, and uh, uh, inshallah, make it easy for the Ummah. Now, Anwar, uh, let's go uh, to our motoring uh, side of it, and they say that the Ford uh, South Africa history and we look at the story, looking back at 100 years of local production, it's unreal. So Ford is here for the past 100 years, Anwar. Talk to us about most it. Def- most definitely. I, I think I, I'm a Ford man when it comes to the Mustang. I really love that vehicle. <clears throat> I still do, actually. <laughs> the 68 Mustang. But anyway, all said and done, uh, Ford actually opened its doors. The first doors was in 1923, if I remember clearly, in Port Elizabeth. And they had a staff of 21 people working in the office. And I I think it was just about 70 working in the plant. And at that period of time, they used to only make 10 cars a day. But they actually, uh, initially they started off in Detroit. And in 1920, they were manufacturing like 9,000 cars per day in Detroit. And in 1920, obviously they built here. and, And it was a slow process. But by 1925, in South Africa alone, we had 18,000 licensed uh, Model T Ford cars. And in total, they built 15 million units in that period of time. So Alhamdulillah, you know, and the amazing part about the Ford company, you know, uh, I I think it was in the early years, I I think it was in 1985, that Ford actually uh, merged with a company called Amcar. And uh, they, 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 they together became Samco. But in the year 2000, Ford took over Samco completely. So they're 100% shareholders of Samco. And Samco, I think most of our listeners will know, is uh, a combination of Ford and Mazda itself. So that is the reason that the badges are different. If you look at Suzuki and if you look at Toyota, exactly the same difference. You know, Suzuki is owned by Toyota. So likewise, now basically Ford holds... The, the ranks are in 100% uh, ownership of Samco, which means Mazda and Ford. So this is a remarkable job. Uh, initially, cars used to actually take 12 hours to build one car when in, uh, down in South Africa, in Port Elizabeth. And over the short period of time, it used to be take only 90 minutes to, to build a car. So a lot has happened since then. Uh, if you look at the, the history prior to South Africa coming in 1923, uh, the Ford company was actually started in 1903, and this is the time the Wright brothers first uh, so-called created flight. I, I think that they, they flew for 36 meters in 12 seconds, and exactly the same year, Henry Ford actually started the Ford Motor Company. And obviously, I think we know what goes under the banner of Ford. If you look at the uh, yesteryear cars like the Capri, the Anglia, the Prefect, the Zodiac, the Zephyr, the Furlane. And talking about the Zephyr, my dad actually owned one. You know, I used to see the pictures of it. Hands are very, very beautiful cars. But uh, Ford actually came out a very, very long way since the interception in 1923, especially in South Africa, considering it actually, you know, has given us 100 years of their service. I remember the Zephyr and all that. Uh, I mean, they had some good-shaped cars and the Ford Cortinas. And, you know, uh, some of them became iconic cars, uh, Anwar. Most of them, I would say, you know, I, I'm actually with this one group. It's called the Vintage uh, uh, Buying and Selling Group, you know. And I, I'm actually on the group because I, I love the vintage vehicles. And a lot of these Fords, actually, if you look at the Ford Furling, 
some of the thoughts feelings are fitting over half a million zans nowadays. You know, the angles you don't get to see. I remember when I was growing up, most of the vehicles I could identify on the, on the road. But nowadays, if you see an angler or a prefect or a zephyr on the road, you tend to get excited. My kids will ask me, what vehicle is that? Because they've never seen it. But in yesteryear, we used to see all those vehicles. If you look at the Hillman Vogue, you know, it had this beautiful dash, like this wooden green dash. If you look at the money itself, the money survived umpteen years also. So a lot of these vehicles from yesteryear, and I think the good part about it, they weren't so considered when it came to the fuel economy of the vehicle itself. They looked at simplicity. They looked at safety. Safety in the sense, you know, it was very rugged, hard vehicles. But today's vehicles, the chassis is incorporated in the body itself. So that's the reason if you meet a small accident, the vehicle tends to be written off. A lot of cars from yesteryear used to have independent chassis itself. So you, you, it's exactly like how the buckies were built. I remember, like, you know, uh, my father had an Oldsmobile. There was only two in South Africa, one of those vintage cars. And it had a full steel structure when it came to the chassis. And it had the wood in between it. And then it had a cap thrown on top of it. So those cars were still very, very solid cars. But if you look at today's cars, it seems like it's just, you know, pressed in one form, basically. That's how it is, where the doors just get to open the boot. But if you look at the roof and the actual chassis, it's all one vehicle. Now, you talk about those cars of yesteryear, and they were heavy on what? They were not uh, light cars because uh, the bumpers alone were pure steel. If that bumper hit anything, that thing smashed anything, the car wouldn't smash. But the thing that it hit was gone for good on what? Yes, most definitely. If you look at most of them are chrome bumpers. But if you look at the majority of the vehicles today, all the, the bumpers are plastic. You know, it has very little metal reinforcements behind it. You know, I, I remember when I was in school, and that was many moons away, and I remember the Porsche at 15 kilometers an hour, if it tapped into anything, there'll be absolutely no damage. But today's vehicles, you know, you just taps it, and you'll find that you've got to replace your bumper because everything's plastic. And I also remember in school, the Japanese came up with a plastic. It was called Exnoid Plastic. And it was a very remarkable plastic, but unfortunately, they never produced vehicles on it. Apparently, this vehicle could do uh, this plastic was supposed to be actually with fenders and all, you know, with the, your actual surrounds of the vehicle, all your panels. And if you met with the accident, it just pops out again. You know, it was very sturdy, hard plastic. But I suppose the reason it never got into production because they would actually lost a lot of money, you know, in this whole process. Exactly the same, like you look at the motors. I remember many years ago, a ceramic, a ceramic engine was actually developed and we retained in 90% of heat and gave you very uh, good fuel consumption, a lot more torque, a lot more power, but they said it was actually too expensive to build a ceramic engine. You know, and that is why I suppose we've got aluminium motors. But if you look at the disadvantage of the motors we have in our vehicles today, aluminium, if you blow your head gasket, you have a problem of walkage on your block, and most of the time you've got to throw your complete motor or rebuild your complete engine. You know, so it didn't become very cost-effective when it comes to the modern age or modern-day cars itself. It became a very expensive affair to repair your vehicle, repair your engine. Unlike the, uh, the old days, the old days people had this small school bag, I would say, in the boot of the vehicle. They had just basic spanners, a few screwdrivers, pliers, and they could fix anything. And you'll never find anyone stuck on the road because everyone used to be mechanics to their own cars at that time. But today, 
with advancements in technology, you know, very, I, I know I get a lot of calls where mechanics are actually stuck on certain vehicles, not sure what to do. You know, and I suppose that is the circle we live in because no mechanic tends to know everything about vehicles today, especially with the electronics that incorporated with the vehicles. So, yes, it's become a little, as much as we reach the fourth revolution or whatever it may be, you know, uh, it's become difficult. Cars has become a, a necessity to a point, but a very expensive affair also to the other side. You know, Anwar, you make a lot of sense. As you said, people own cars and uh, people of yesteryear, the points, the condenser and this and that. Then you, hey, if I got stuck, I'll use a sandpaper here or, you know, or you'll phone a friend. He'd say, yeah, you do this and that. And you got away. And as you said, today you get stuck, you're stuck because that car is all computerized. And as you said, uh, the older mechanics will uh, find it difficult to, uh, uh, to, to to work on it and so forth. But uh, another question to pose, uh, Anwar, is... Uh, the most difficult engine you worked with, you know, in 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 in, in your years as a as a you know as a mechanic, Anwar. I, I would say uh, I worked on uh, the most difficult. I would say uh, uh, I, I did a Kunish Rolls Royce. I remember where we couldn't get space for this vehicle. The pistons. It was an eight-cylinder Kunish, 1967, and. It went to Marani Motors. Uh, I don't think they exist at this present moment, but they used to be the agents for Rolls-Royce. And it came to me, and for some reason, because I worked in a few Rolls-Royce, I perfected the braking system on these vehicles. And it came to the braking system, but I picked up it had a bearing, uh, a piston flap, I would say, where the pistons are actually very small in the bores. And I remember, you know, I, I took out those pistons, and they were like 140 pounds below you know, what it's supposed to actually be, and so basically all shrunk. And I gave it to the owner of uh, Marani Motors, a white gentleman, and he so-called expanded the piston. That was one of the most intriguing. He created a scribing machine that actually compressed the piston on either side, and it expanded the piston. And when he gave me the eight pistons, he told me, he said, you might have to use a sandpaper just to make it slightly smaller. It might not fit in the bowl, which was, you know, very, very true in what he said. But the problem set in, we couldn't get a space for the vehicle, so I had to get rings, and I remember matching up a set. I bought two sets of V6, um, uh, it was Ford, Cortina rings, I remember. And then we had a problem with the Doletos itself, the carburetor, the, the intake, and I ended up buying, I, I, I can't remember, but it was one of the Ford products. I bought the needle and seats from there, and we had to mix and match, and the vehicle sat with me for about two to three months, I think, and finally, I got it right, and alhamdulillah. But I, I suppose it wasn't, I won't say it was difficult to do, but acquiring spares and modifying things. I remember cutting rings, you know, to fit into the ball and cutting ring grooves on the piston so that it, you know, it goes in. There was a quite a, I think it was more labor-intensive than anything else. So alhamdulillah, you know, I, I suppose that was one of the remarkable vehicles, I would say. That, but if you look at today's cars, if you look at the, the Peugeot's, the, the Capri's, I've done a, a, a five-cylinder, very difficult. I remember my boys at the workshop took, I think uh, it was uh, 17 hours to strip the two heads on this vehicle. And I, I got a bit angry because nobody takes 17 hours. And when I checked the specs on it, it actually takes 22 hours to strip and 27 hours to put back two heads. <clears throat> so if you look at the duration of time allocated to do certain work on certain vehicles, it's mind-boggling, really. 
yeah, it looks like uh, robotics have to come in there and do uh, the stripping of the engines and so forth. But, uh, Albert, you know, as you talk about all these uh, that come through and all these uh, different types of uh, challenges that came through and you got it worked out, I mean, we, you had a good friend of yours, uh, the late, uh, you know, the motor doctor and, uh, you know, uh, Ahmed. Uh, they call him the motor doctor. But he was a master when it came to Mercedes-Benz. I mean, uh, I remember you telling me how he mixed and matched and, you know, did things. Uh, sometimes he couldn't get the spares, but he'll make a plan and then then he'll make make sure that the car worked, Anwar. And how did uh, Ahmad do that? A very personal friend. <clears throat> you know, with the years of experience he had, I used to always tell him, I used to tell him, Ahmad Bhai, you know, um, the gift that you have, you know, and I, I couldn't understand. We go back over 30 years. And I realized over time it was the experience of this dunya, experience of the cars that gives you that edge. But he was just remarkable. He could cut, he could take a Toyota chain, timing chain, and convert it to fit into a Mercedes 230E or C200, I remember. You know, the things, I remember tensioners, he used to use a fixed bolt so it doesn't actually pull back, so you can turn the motor back and forwards. You know, you only supposed to turn the motor forward, but all technical terms. But the fact is, he had a gift. Really, and Alhamdulillah, you know, I really miss him. You know, and there's very few people, Brother Shafat, I take as very close, and you happen to be one of them. Ahmed Bai was also one of them. So, yes, we do miss him. There's times I'm doing a V6 Mercedes at the moment, and so often I think about him. You know, I think if any of was here, you know, not for the advice, but just for the comfort of knowing somebody has your back, you know, and really speaking, he, he was a true treasure when he came to the motor industry and it's a, a total loss, I would say, to many. No, I'm not here, really, I, I, I miss him like, uh, you know, and I may, let's make dua for him that Allah grants him the highest stages of uh, Jannah, that is Jannah to fill those, and uh, they're, they're glad we spoke about him, and I mean, you and I, uh, we are like brothers. I mean, we are brothers, you and I, and we embrace and celebrate each other. But Anwar, as we move on and uh, we look at uh, the stories that are coming through, uh, they say 13 key segments according to the cars award the judges. Uh, these are the best cars in uh, according to these 13 segments. Who are they? And who are these cars, Anwar? Okay, if we look at the car awards, a lot of times you find it is said that, you know, what we're actually discussing, that these guys took about uh, 4,000 car owners, you know, on all different segments, and all those vehicles were serviced at the agents, and they got basically the feedback of 4,000 people to see the response of all those vehicles. And they looked at the level, and if you look at uh, the price range of 250 to 300,000, the Renault Clio came in, the Suzuki Bonero, the Toyota Starlet, and it goes on like that, the 350 to 500,000 was a Honda Fit, the Opel Corsa, VW Polo 1.1 liter TSI, you know. And it, my point being, you know, what I found is as much as one person might love one said vehicle, you'll find it fair because if it was such a beautiful vehicle, you'll find everyone will be driving the said vehicle. But realistically, if you look at the roads, you know, you will find, comparison, you will find maybe two or three Polos driving the same direction, You'll find the Renaults in the same direction. But when it comes to car preferences, I think it's left to the individual because as we discussed in previous shows, you know, a car is bought not only on the pretext of the value of it so it doesn't lose a lot of retail, but to your own needs. It has to suffice for your own needs itself, for fuel economy. Some people just need it to run around locally. Some use it as a repping vehicle for distance. So 
when it comes to most of these um, cars, you know, when it comes to this award itself, I don't really take much of an interest in it because, really speaking, none of the cars that was mentioned, I think 39 vehicles was mentioned. I, I've got a Jeep, it's half a Wrangler, I've got a Mercedes TLA, I've got a BMW, I've got a Golf 5 TDI. My point is none of them came on the list. So it tells you the preference of people. Now, sometimes you just wonder to yourself if it's just not an advertising campaign. Because if you look at the list of 39, which I did, you find that Toyota was very prominent. Renault was quite prominent. One Haval was mentioned once there, you know. And it, the list goes on. Suzuki, I think quite a few of Suzuki's came out in all the different areas, you know. So I wouldn't really go into looking at that day and looking at people's preferences. Yes, I would consider price range because it has actually narrowed it down from two to three hundred thousand budget. This said vehicle I can buy from three hundred to five hundred thousand. This I could buy. But really speaking, you know, once again, with the economy on the low time, uh, all time low itself, you know, a lot of people are considering pre-owned vehicles. You know, whether it has comes with service history or it doesn't, the fact of the matter, you save quite a considerable uh, bit of money when it comes to that. I think in this economy we live in, you know, besides businesses that's actually, you know, finding it's taking a toll uh, financially on them, you find a lot of vehicles being bought now. These are second-hand vehicles. Well, you're talking about second-hand vehicles, uh, lots of, and uh, I mean, they're not cheap. The prices are quite high also. Well, we talk about electric vehicles, but, uh, you know, this is maybe something that is coming on. Man abducted by his electric car, and police forced to ram into it to make the vehicle stop. Anwar? You know, <clears throat> that was a very interesting uh, interesting article, actually, really. There's all this incident happening in the U.K., and it's not the first time, because if you look at Elon Musk's Teslas, they're always noted for doing extreme or doing something wrong on the road itself, especially with electric vehicles, you know, because I think we become too dependent on electronics itself, and we're bound to have malfunctions. Now, if you look at the set, uh, this topic that we are talking about is in the UK itself, here we have a poor guy that is not really able, I would say. They don't really say he is... Uh, uh, disabled in any way, but apparently he couldn't get off the vehicle. You know, it made it difficult. So he goes around this um, a corner and he realizes there's no brakes on his vehicle. And he comes to the street and he expects his vehicle to stop while he's pressing or applying brakes. And the vehicle still does not stop. And in all this time, he's doing a range of about 48 kilometers an hour. So he phones the cops and he tells them, guys, I've got a problem. And you know what? This is the problem. My, my car doesn't have brakes. And that is how the cops ended up next to him, and they basically slammed him, you know, very gradually, I suppose, because he never got hurt or injured. And that is how they put a stop to this year, you know. So it was actually MG, and that is what's so scary about electric vehicles, you know. I mean, if you look at Dubai itself and Saudi, they got vehicles, they got these taxis that's running that is not, it's not manned itself. You know, it's full electric in every way. It's fully computerized, you know. So it becomes a bit scary itself. I like things to actually, like when I buy products in the market, I wait for a feedback in the market. You know, I actually go and I research certain items, depending on what I'm buying or what I'm looking for, you know, to see how the market has treated it or how it's treated the market. And then I have an insight as to the product itself. Likewise, as it comes to electric vehicles, it is here in itself and people are rushing, you know, to, to grab onto it, you know, to get the market share, I would say, globally. So that becomes scary because people are bound to make mistakes in the manufacturing of these vehicles. 
So I would actually, if I do own an electric vehicle, inshallah, one day, you know, I'll really buy a vehicle that's been traveled on this road in our terrain, basically, our climate, our environment, and for a duration of time before I really commit to it. So a lot of people are just going out and lavishly spending on these vehicles, which is really not cheap, you know. And these are the mishaps or the hiccups they're actually dealing with. Absolutely, Anwar. And, uh, yeah, you make a good observation there. And uh, you you look for the tried and tested. Uh, your parting words are this evening, Anwar? No, Alhamdulillah, Shafaz, we're going to very beautiful weather nowadays, you know. Alhamdulillah, the metrics, my daughter finished her trials and, you know, the kids will be all getting ready for the final examination. And once again, I would stress the fact that we all cannot be doctors, lawyers, not there's a lot of hype about it. But the fact is, Almighty knows the best. All our kids need to do, try the best, you know, go out there, study. So I'm not saying if, even if you had to come down in metric, doesn't mean to say you're a failure. Most of the most prominent people, if you look at Henry Ford, we spoke about, you look at uh, Einstein, you look at most of these guys, most of them were school dropouts. I'm not saying drop out of school, obviously. All I'm saying is give it your best and inshallah you will find what you are actually best at and then you go in search of that and excel in that itself. So I'm hoping our kids can bring about a brighter future in this dunya, Brother Shafat, and leave all that we have seen in the last few years as a yesteryear or as a memory. Jazakallah khair, Anwar. You have a mashallah beautiful evening ahead. There's a box of uh, mints there for you because of the uh, powerful presentation you also do on your segment. Inshallah, we'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, sir, time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and after that, I will be joined by Maulana Salim Karim and Ibrahim Varachia. Let's go for the Azan.